Good morning, everybody. Good to see you on this lovely summer Sunday morning. I believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I believe that it is unique among books, that there is no other book like it, that it is more than just the musings of ancient people uh, writing down their thoughts and perspectives and so forth. I believe that God was uniquely engaged in the writing of this book. And the word inspired is to breathe, and so that this book was breathed into existence by God through human vessels that were surrendered to him, and that in the reading of this book that we gain insights into the God of the universe, the God who created us all, that we gain insights into humanity and how humanity um, is and acts and reacts and so forth and the interplay between the creator God and human beings that all of that is um, described in and we best understand uh, who God is through his inspired word. I believe that with all my heart. If you don't, it's still a great read that if you read the Bible and spend time reading the Bible, that you will find inspiration and information that will um, be mind-expanding, soul-expanding, and uh, challenging and encouraging, all of those good things. And uh, so I hope that you will spend some time uh, reading scripture, if that's not part of what you uh, do as a part of your own spiritual life development, that you'll uh, begin to spend time in the Word of God. One of the things that has been inspiring to me as I've been developing uh, messages for this series is these people who were highlighting in this Great Read series just how heroic these men and women were in the time in which they lived. They were truly heroes in every sense of that word, and they were also flawed. These people were fully human. They were flawed people, and it becomes evident as you read their stories. And that's one of the things I find so exceptional about Scripture, that these heroic people aren't just heroes that do everything right, and, you know, because they're following God, they get it right all the time and so forth. That would be fiction. These are real people who are in real-life situations and trying to honor God in the midst of that. And uh, so, and getting it wrong at times. So it's heroes who are flawed. And that is certainly true of our character that we're going to be looking at this morning, the person of Samson, a man of great strength, but who is also flawed. In many ways, Samson's life is a kind of cautionary tale of someone who takes their strengths for granted and gets lost in their weaknesses. One of the things I hope you understand is that you have God-given strength, that God has 
hardwired into you, has built into your life these strengths, spiritual gifts, talents, abilities that are uniquely yours. And while others may have similar gifts to what you have, the way that you express them through your own personality, through your own experiences and own networks of friends and so forth, all of that makes these strengths that God has given you unique and important. You have strengths. And it's important that you and I recognize that we have these God-given strengths and weaknesses as well. So this morning, as uh, we're looking at the story of Samson, um, <clears throat> we're not going to be able to cover the whole story. It's, it's actually a fairly long story. It covers, as you just saw in the video, um, Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. It's a lot of ink in the Bible. Not many people get that kind of uh, time and uh, focus in Scripture. So he's an important figure in the Bible, and uh, it's an epic story. And I would really encourage you to take some time and read it this week. But I'm not going to have time to go through the whole story. You just heard it. I can't compete with Lego guys anyway. So that was the uh, overview of the story. So really what I want to look at more is kind of what was behind the story, this cautionary tale, and what we can learn and apply from Samson's life. So, but just to uh, begin, let's see how Samson came to the world. Um, in the 13th chapter of the book of Judges, it says this, and the words are on the screen. An angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife, that Manoah is Samson's father, Manoah's wife, and said, even though you have been unable to bear children, you will, uh, yeah, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. Be very careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And he must never, and his hair must never be cut. For he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So a few things that we learn about him right from the beginning. One is that he has a God-given mission. He has an assignment that he is coming to fulfill. He is going to, he is going to rescue Israel. He is going to redeem, if you will, Israel from the oppressor Philistines. He has a God-given calling. I believe that's true of all of us. I believe that you have a God-given calling. That from the very beginning of time, God had a purpose for you to be here. You are not an accident. You are here for a purpose and by design. So that was true of Samson. The next thing that we hear about Samson is that he is going to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a sect of the uh, Jewish faith, and um, 
it had a kind of a specific, I'm, I'm clicking here, I don't know why I'm doing that, sorry. I don't know what that is. I'll try not to as much. <laughs> um, so part of the sect, these Nazarites of the Jewish faith. So these were, these were folks who were uniquely dedicated to God. The word Nazarite literally means to be separate or set apart. So he is set apart for this purpose. And they live a more austere kind of life. So this whole idea that they're not to drink wine, actually they're not supposed to have anything to do with grapes. Anything to do with grapes. So whether it's wine or vinegar from grapes, eating grapes, raisins, anything to do with grapes, they're to abstain from. And I think part of that is a recognition that grapes were this kind of luxury item, right? They were, they were identified with, you know, things of pleasure and luxury and so forth. And so as a Nazarene, you're going to live a more austere life. And so you, you don't indulge in eating of grapes or drinking of wine and so forth. The other part of it is you grow your hair. You don't, you don't cut your hair. And I don't know what that was about other than it's a sign, you know, there's some value to this physical attribute that as people would see a man walking around with really long hair, they would know that's probably a Nazarite. So it was a physical manifestation of this devotion. There are two different ways that you could take the Nazarite vow. For some, it was a vow that they took for a particular season in their life. So it might be months or maybe a couple of years. The Apostle Paul did that. The Apostle Paul took a Nazarite vow for a specific period of time in his life. For the others, it was a lifelong commitment to live the Nazarite life. The uh, uh, example in the New Testament of that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a Nazarite for his entire adult life. Samson was a Nazarite for his entire life. The other thing uh, that I wanted to mention about Nazarites is that Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was a Nazarene. Nazarite means separate and apart. Nazarene is a shoot, a young shoot or sprout. And he was only a Nazarene because he was born in the region of Nazareth in Israel. So just so there's no confusion about that when you're thinking about this later and go, wait a minute, wasn't Jesus a Nazarite? No, he was a Nazarene. So you can take that to work. You can tell your friends. It'll dazzle them. Hey, did you know Samson was a Nazarite and Jesus was a Nazarene? They'll be fascinated. All right. The other thing about uh, Samson is that he was a judge. Samson was a judge. So again, put this in kind of a context, a historical context. The um, Israelites, freed from Egypt, move into the promised land, and they begin the process of settling into the promised land. 
So the whole first generation of leaders, Moses and Joshua and those guys, have all passed away. Um, and they are now in this process of establishing this land that God has given them into a livable place. And so they have to do everything that you would imagine people have to do. They have to uh, cre uh, create um, agriculture so that they can feed themselves and water systems because they're in a desert climate. They have to build their homes and so forth. So they have to tend to their personal needs, their family needs, and this more broader community kind of needs. And uh, this period of time lasted about 325 years, the period of the judges, 325 years. So in our context, that would mean if the United States started in 1776, this period went from then until the year 2100. Okay, that's about the time frame, uh, the length of time we're talking about. So there was no centralized government at that time. And so God would send these um, judges to help the people deal with any conflicts that might come up. So you can imagine as uh, with any group of people that uh, there'd be conflicts and con disagreements and so forth over, you know, all kinds of things. And so the judges would help uh, with those kinds of disputes. They were also organizing figures um, against enemy attack. So there were enemies, countries that wanted to wipe out the Jewish population or overtake them, oppress them, and so forth. And so over the course of those 325 years, they were regularly um, attacked and sometimes occupied by these enemy forces. One of the things, uh, and, and so uh, God would send these judges to serve in this way. So they were judicial people as well as military people. Joshua was the 12th of the 12 judges. During that time, there were 12 judges, and Joshua was the 12th. As you read this story, if you go home and read it, it is a story filled with violence and bloodshed. And you'll be reading along and thinking, holy mackerel. You know, we saw it was kind of done in a humorous way, but he slayed like a thousand people. Like that's a lot of, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of bloodshed. It's hard for us in 21st century America to put ourselves in a context where your very existence is being threatened by an occupying army, by a violent occupying army bent on your destruction and taking away all of the things that are precious to you, your values, your beliefs, your, your property, all of those things that are so precious and taking them away in a violent way. We've never had that experience in this country in our lifetime. So I would liken it to the experience that people must have been having in villages and towns and cities in Iraq when ISIS came in, right? this foreign group of people who are coming in who are violently taking over your community. 
and who are imposing on you rules and regulations, laws and so forth that are contrary to anything that you believe or understand to be true and are doing it in such a violent kind of way. So that's the kind of world that Samson existed in. And so as you read the stories and you're going, wow, you know, it's in that context that he has to be, he has to be seen. So he is a Nazarite. He is a man who is deeply devoted to God. He has given up luxuries of life. He wears his faith on his head, if you will. You know, it's a very visible kind of faith, a very serious kind of faith. He is a warrior. He is a judge. He's a patriot. He's an impressive guy. And he has, as this gift of God, this incredible physical strength. You know, and so there's the story of him being attacked by a lion and killing this lion with his bare hands. That's why we have all these lions up here, just to, no, that's not true. That's for the kids doing Daniel in the lion's den. It's a different lion story, but anyway, I thought it was kind of clever. <clears throat> all right. So that's the context that we see. So here's this guy, this incredible guy, this man of God, this guy with this great strength, this deep conviction, dedicated to God, and has this weakness. He has this weakness. In his case, the weakness is probably best described as lust. He has an eye for the ladies. And he allows it to carry him away at times. So he sees a beautiful woman, and he wants to know her in the biblical sense of that. The very first example we have of that is early in the story as he is walking along and sees this beautiful young woman and tells his parents, I want to marry her. And they said, well, yeah, but she's a Philistine. He doesn't care. He wants her. And it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. We read of him having uh, sleeping with prostitute, right? This lust thing going on. And then along comes another woman. When you hear Samson, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Delilah, right? He is ever, forever connected to this other woman, Delilah, who is not good for him. And you wonder, how is this guy who has all of this wisdom and knowledge being deceived like this? I mean, he's a judge for goodness sakes. You would think that he has the ability to discern right from wrong and listen to testimony and conversation and to be able to make decisions about this is a person I can trust and believe in, this is a person I can't trust and believe in, and yet when it comes to women, he has, it seems, this lack of ability to discern. And I think it's because he's got this Lust in his heart. 
Here's the cautionary tale. We all have strengths given to us from God, and we all have this thing in us called sin. Sin. Now, I know that's not a popular word in our culture today. People don't like to hear the word. They don't like to use the word. They don't like to say the word. They want to be dismissive of the word. You know, sin, that's old-fashioned. It's, it's judgmental and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So you rarely hear people talking about sin, except when it comes to tax. There's a sin tax. It's the one time I, can, I hear it in the culture. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm missing it, but I don't, I don't hear this word used very often in the culture these days, sin, right? But here's what people will say. I'm not perfect, right? You hear that. You probably said it, right? I'm not perfect. Well, just by saying that, what we're saying by implication is that there is a standard There's a standard, perfection. And I'm not there. Where do we get this idea of this perfection? Well, it comes from God. It comes from God. God is the one who gives us this internal sense toward what is right and what is wrong. Whether or not you have ever been to a Sunday school class or read the Bible or sat through a sermon or whatever, people have this innate understanding of things that are right and things that are wrong, this standard, this perfect standard. And when we say, I'm not perfect, we're saying that there's the standard and I'm missing it. I'm not quite there. I haven't, I'm not perfect. That is the very definition of sin. The word sin in the Greek means to miss the mark. Perfect, miss, that's sin. So call it whatever you want, that's what sin is. It's missing God's perfect standard. We miss the mark. And we all do it. That's one of the things that the Bible says, that in essence, the Bible says nobody's perfect. Everybody misses the mark. All sin and fall short of God's standard. So that's the condition that we find ourselves in. And Samson was the same. In the 6th century, Pope Gregory was trying to um, codify the most um, destructive sins that did the most damage in people's lives and relationships. And so he got together with a lot of smart theologians and they were trying to create a list of uh, those sins and ended up coming with a list, coming up with a list of seven that have since become known as, you got it? The Seven Deadly Sins. It wasn't just a movie. Here's what they came up with. Here's the list. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, and apathy. They may have used slightly different words, but that's the essence of the seven 
deadly sins. Years ago, we did a, a series on the seven deadly sins, and oddly, it was one of the most popular series we ever did. People loved it. Like, ooh, I wonder what sin they're doing this week. It was a seven-week series. I think people came because they wanted to hear about people they knew and which one, you know, like, I know who that is. Right. But the reality is all of us wrestle with these weaknesses. Not all seven. In fact, I suspect that in most cases, we have, you have, one of these areas that is your greatest temptation, your greatest weakness, with which you struggle all the time. And it causes you the most grief in your life. You see, I think that's the way it works. I don't think it's like, well, you know, last week it was greed, but, you know, this week I'm really struggling with anger, and, you know, three weeks from now it's going to be lust or, or something like that. I think, I think for the most part there is that area in your life, in your character, that sin disease that manifests itself in different ways but is rooted in the same issue. And that's what was going on with Samson. His sin was lust, and it got him in trouble over and over and over. For Delilah, it was probably greed. She sold out her husband for money. And the reality is that sin has consequences. You know, it's, again, you know, the temptation is to dismiss it. You know, when we say nobody's perfect, part of what we're trying to say there is, I don't want to deal with my stuff, right? Yeah, you know, nobody's perfect, right? And it's, it's a kind of denial. It's, a, it's admitting something without really admitting it. Because everybody falls short. I'm like everybody else. We all, you know, and so I'm not going to deal with my stuff. Sin has consequences. So for Samson, the consequences were he lost his strength. When he told Delilah the source of his strength was in his uncut hair, and she sold him out for cash. Strength was taken away. The thing he took for granted, his physical strength, got lost because of the sin in his life. Our effectiveness, our ability to do the things that God wants us to do, to be the people God wants us to be, can be so negatively affected by this sin disease that we all have. What Samson forgot was that his strength, his physical strength, was not his own, and it really had very little to do with his hair. His strength came from the Lord. In fact, every time when you read the story, every time he had to do something that took great physical strength, 
it says, the spirit of the Lord came on him and he did what he needed to do. That's the source of his strength and that's the source of our strength as well. And so our personal strength is limited. My personal strength is limited. Whatever strength you have just within your character and so forth is limited. There is a limit to your strength, but not to God's. And Paul, the Apostle Paul understood that. And that's when he wrote these words in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength, with inner strength through his spirit. We have limited resources. God's are unlimited. I pray that through God's unlimited resource, he will empower you with strength through his spirit. That in other words, that those weaknesses, that sin in your life, not so overpower you that it does damage to you, to the people you care about, to the mission that God has for you to serve. So, Samson loses his strength. He is blinded. His hair is cut. He's enslaved, and he becomes an object of ridicule. They march him out to mock him, and in essence are mocking his faith, are mocking his God, are mocking the people. And it must have been so devastating. to the Jewish people, to watch their judge, their hero, this patriot, in such a state. But you know, God doesn't leave us in our broken place. God doesn't abandon us to our sin. Jesus didn't come to gather together the perfect in little places to judge the rest of the world. He came for the broken. He came for the weak. He came for the sinner to redeem us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who uh, wrote the translation of the Bible called The Message, uh, pastor and theologian, wrote these words. When we sin and mess up our lives, we find that God doesn't go off and leave us. He enters into our trouble and saves us. That's why Jesus came. He came to rescue us from that sin nature. He came to bring us redemption, not because we are perfect, but because we miss the mark and keep missing the mark because of our own inability, our own weakness. And he becomes our strength. He becomes our redeemer. And so God 
came to Samson, he gave Samson the strength that he needed to fulfill his mission of rescuing Israel from the oppressor, the Philistines, as he brought down the temple upon him. He gave him renewed strength to do what he needed to do. And so I just want to encourage you guys this morning that in the face of whatever struggles you may have, whether they are struggles from outside of you or struggles within you, that God has not abandoned you, that God has given you a strength and a calling and a purpose, and that in that broken place, in those times where you fall short, that Jesus is there, his unlimited resource of grace and forgiveness and second chances is part of your story. And so lay hold of that. Lay hold of that. Let's stand together. Let me pray for us. So Lord God, thank you for your word that is life-giving and spirit-expanding. Thank you for the experiences of the great heroes of the past like Samson. People who were devoted to you and yet flawed. And you didn't reject them, you used them for your purposes. You blessed them, even though they didn't deserve it. You lifted them up. for a greater cause, for a greater purpose. And so, God, I pray that same would be true for each of us, that you would use us, use our strengths to be a blessing to others, and that we would live out our days clear about our call, our mission, to make disciples. And that in those ways that we fall short, Lord, that you'll bring forgiveness and redemption and set us back on right paths. I pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And God's people agreed and said, have a great week.